Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Saturn Vox podcast, where discussions of philosophy meet the liminal space we weave in dreams. This is your host, holder of a mostly useless philosophy degree and hard determinist, Michaela Ann. This week, I have invited one of my very best friends and astrology teacher, Delena of the Moon Matters podcast, to come on the show and talk about the system of philosophy which was practiced by the majority of Hellenistic astrologers. We know that taking on the hat of determinism can seem very scary, especially to magicians who want to reshape the world according to their will. I think this is a very fine aspiration. But as you listen to the rest of the episode, I want magicians most of all to keep this quote by Arthur Schopenhauer in the back of your head. A man can do as he wills, but not will as he wills. So join us as we explore what it means to be a Stoic, how Stoicism fits into astrology, and why allowing ourselves to view fate with a sense of awe may actually be the key to setting ourselves free. If you find this podcast interesting and want to show some support, consider checking out the Patreon at www.patreon.com slash SaturnVox. Everybody, it's Michaela of Saturn Box, and welcome to another episode of the cast. Today we have Delena of the Moon Matters podcast here with us, and uh, we're going to be doing a little discussion on Stoic philosophy. So before we get started, Delena, do you just want to introduce yourself to the little cast world out there? Yeah, definitely. What is up, everyone? Very excited to be here today. So some of you listening may know me, some of you may not. I'm Delena from the Moon Matters podcast. I am a Hellenistic astrologer. I'm a Stoic philosopher. I dabble in Jungian psychology. I, I wear a lot of hats. I do a lot of things. But above all, I would say top tier for me is Stoic philosophy and then also astrology. And I'm not so much an astrologer in the sense that I read charts and things like that. I've actually gotten away from that recently. And I'm teaching. I like to inform people, empower them as to how to use astrology for themselves. So that's what I'm up to right now. Love that. Love that. So with that being said, I think we can just jump right in. Um, What it, when you say that you are a Stoic philosopher, what exactly does that mean to you? What is Stoicism to you and how does it apply to your life? All right. We can we can actually have a bit of an origin story for this, how it all kind of happened in a very serendipitous way. It was probably about almost 10 years ago now, and I was at work. And me being a Sagittarius with a Sagittarius stellium, I'm a very philosophical person. I, it's like, I'm like a walking fortune cookie, per se. You know, I, I say a lot of quips and things. And so that's just kind of how I am. And I was at work and I don't even remember what I said or how I said it. But my boss just kind of looked at me and he was like, what are you, a stoic? And, and I was just like, actually, I think I might be. And that is kind of where it all just cascaded into me really studying stoicism and finding out that not only do I love it, but I've kind of been practicing it my whole life. It wasn't something that I had to transition into or learn too much about to kind of grasp. It was always just kind of my default setting, I'll say. And uh, for those of you that don't know what stoicism is, is it okay if I kind of give like a brief overview of stoicism oh yeah i would really appreciate that cool cool so stoicism overall 
is a very practical philosophy. And that's why I say not only am I a Stoic philosopher, but I'm also a practicing Stoic. Stoicism really stresses morals and not just the idea of morals. You're not just sitting around being like, what are ethics? What are morals? It's more about the implementation of those morals and ethics in your own life. It's about living in accordance with nature or the logos, which when I say nature or logos, they're the same thing. And logos is the divine energy of the world that is imbued throughout everything. So it's really when Stoics say living in accordance with nature, they're saying that it's becoming one with the divine and really living right by it. So Stoicism is a very rational philosophy. It's about conquering your mind and uh, accepting the world around you. It's really an essential thing to accept the physical. Conquering your mind is so important in order to accept the physical world. And uh, that's kind of the main thing of it. The only other thing I would say for the listeners, if they wanted to kind of have a jump off point as to where to start with stoicism, I would start with the four stoic virtues, which are courage, wisdom, temperance, and justice. So those four things are kind of like the cornerstones, the big things that if you wanted to get into it, that is where I would start. Lovely. Yeah, I love your definition of stoicism being kind of just as much a practice as it is a philosophy. And that core idea actually ties into how I first got introduced to the concept, albeit I will admit that I did not read any stoic material until recently, but when I was in college, uh, I was a philosophy and world religions major. I specialized in Buddhism and my Buddhist philosophy advisor and very close teacher for my four years in school always would say, oh, well, the closest type of Western philosophy that there is to Buddhism is that of the Stoics. And it has been... Uh, I, it really does boil down to what you just said, because both Buddhism and Stoicism are basically ways that we cope. They're not, they're, I, I almost want to say self-help philosophies uh, that are meant to help you deal with life sufferings and, you know, impermanence is a big theme in both. Um, that was another thing that I found interesting as I was reading Marcus Aurelius's meditations is how many times he referenced Heraclitus. You never step in the same river twice, that idea of constant change. Um, and I'd actually written a paper in college about Heraclitus being similar to Buddhism. So it was just really fun to see those ties of these different self-help philosophies that deal with impermanence as well as fate, right? Because that's a huge deal in Stoicism as well. In in Buddhism, I have a quick question. In Buddhism, aren't there four noble truths? Is that a thing? Yes. Are they akin to the um, the virtues at all? Do you know? Because I don't know much about Buddhism. So... In a way, they don't have like main names the way that they do in Stoicism, but the Four Noble Truths are just that there is suffering, um, that, you know, things are constantly changing, and because that is what the cause of suffering is, but it is also an answer to say the third truth, which is that there must be an end to suffering. Um, eventually. And then the fourth truth is just that, you know, through meditation and constantly evaluating, we can start to detach ourselves from uh, our aggregates. So it's funny that you mentioned that because there is a lot of tie-in, right? Because the aggregates are very similar to the Stoic idea of an indifference. Um, and we can give a little bit of background to that for our listeners. Um, basically, in Stoic philosophy and why 
uh, Delena was emphasizing this idea of, you know, we follow logos, we follow nature. It is to say, instead of allowing my desires to give me truths about life, I analyze even my own emotional responses and I continue to ask myself questions that dig deeper and deeper into the truth until I basically arrive at, oh, well, everything changes, nothing is really permanent. And because of that, you know, me getting worked up about such and such is actually outside of my control. Therefore, the best thing that I can do is just accept because being too happy about something or being too sad about something is actually grasping onto a moment. You're grasping onto the moment of happiness. You're grasping onto the moment of suffering. But if we just accept that, like Heraclitus says, you can't step in the same river twice, then we are admitting to ourselves that to grasp onto any of these moments just doesn't actually make logical sense. Yeah, definitely. In the four virtues, what you just said is really kind of unraveled and like fine-tuned. So courage, for instance, is being unmoved by fear and being able to uphold your virtues in any situation that you're facing. And it's having morals and exercising them even when it's inconvenient to do so. So when you come across a, an indifference that you don't prefer, it's being like, oh, man, you know, I'm having a real cruddy day and I don't feel like exercising my morals or ethics. And I just want to yell at my neighbor for, you know, such and such. But it's in those moments when we don't want to do something or that it's difficult that it really matters. Those are the true tests. And the other virtues also, you know, expand. But that's just one kind of instance. I hope this isn't too much of a digression, but that actually reminds me so much of how I read the Nine of Wands um, in Crowley's Thoth deck. It's called Strength, you know, because he's changed the Strength card to Lust. So it's actually a pip card that we see the word Strength. And it's actually Moon in Sagittarius is the deacon. And to me, that's always meant having the almost like, audacity to just be free and authentic in your expression of your moon self, your emotions, your sublunar. And that takes just immense vulnerability, which implies so much courage, so much courage to be vulnerable and honest in our expression of our emotions. So yeah, I love seeing that tied into another little area of the occult. I agree with that. And as you're saying that, though, it brings up the next virtue, which is would be temperance. Yes, it's good to be vulnerable, but moderation. Yep. You can't go too far in either direction. You uh, And this one actually might be my favorite because it's about exercising control of your actions and your mind. There, It's not overindulging. It's curbing certain behaviors. And really choosing long-term sustainable options over the short-term gratifying ones. So when you say, you know, really being vulnerable, that's a great thing, but also set and setting time and place. Is it actually something you need to do? Do you always need to speak your emotions in your mind? Or, you know, do or should you just temper that a little bit at times? So it's really about striking a balance. And that's what I love about Stoicism is balance. Yeah, I mean, I was maybe going to bring this up later in the talk, but it feels appropriate right now. Um, it's interesting that you bring up temperance and that exact how it's tied into emotions. Because I don't, I mean, I'm not a Stoic. I wouldn't call myself one, even though I have been studying it recently. My critique of Stoicism is actually that it, it doesn't leave a lot of room for you to express your emotions. Actually, in the meditations, Marcus Aurelius is 
pretty constantly beating himself up for, you know, feeling his feelings. I think you really touched on something, though, when you said uh, there's a time and a place. I think for me, you do need to have temperance when you're expressing your emotions and you're being vulnerable. The difference between it being imbalanced and balanced in my mind is that when I'm expressing an emotion, I want, I don't want to lock it up inside of myself. Uh, that is traumatic to the human psyche, I think. However, when I express my grief, I should be doing it with the intention of moving on because I'm going to feel the feeling, let it flow through me like a river, and then move on to the next phase because I'm not grasping at that suffering. So I guess my, I, I don't know if I just haven't read enough stoicism. Maybe this is also what they believe. So uh, Marcus isn't the end all be all. He's kind of the poster child, um, which that's fine. But what I will say is that that is the number one misconception about stoicism. What you just said is that, especially because it's called stoic. In our language, stoic means, you know, hard, you know, unfeeling, when actually stoicism, the reason it's called stoicism is because it was founded by Zeno, and he would give his lectures under a stoa. That's mm, why. And the agora. <laughs> yeah, so he would give them under a stoa, stoicism, you know, epicureanism. I mean, that guy was giving his lectures in, like, his garden. So it was just <laughs> Epicurious, Epicureanism, here it is. But Stoics were just kind of out and they were just uh, preaching it, talking about it to anyone who would listen and under a Stoa. So that's where it comes from. And uh, no, we aren't. I'll say uh, people do accuse me of not having emotions, things like that. But what you said is what I do. I feel something. I don't wait. I don't say, okay, you know, I'll feel this later or I'll, you know, I don't bottle it up. You deal with it here and now. It's a message that your body is giving you now. So deal with it now. Talk about it now. If you can, if you have the ability, if again, set and setting, you can't be at certain places, you know, blow it up all the time sure. and you, and you wouldn't blow up anyway because that's not temperance. And is it, and then we get to wisdom. So that's differentiating between good and bad. Is this really something that affects you? Is this really something that is acting against your virtues? And is it going to stop you from being the person you are? Is it really worth that? Is it worth that reaction in you? These are the things that you learn to weigh when you're a stoic. You know, the TV is not working. Am I going to like throw a fit? <laughs> things like that. No, I'm not. It's going to glide and I'm going to move on. And there are bigger things, like you said, with grief, things like that. You let it out when it comes and you do it appropriately and you see it for what it is. And I know this sounds, this, this is where people think it sounds callous, but, you know, me continuing to grieve isn't going to change it. Me continuing to hold on and not really let myself go and move forward isn't going to change it. That's, that's actually acting against your nature when you don't allow yourself to heal, when you don't allow yourself to move on. So I think people think it's not emotional, but really it's just dealing with your emotions in a more swift, rational way. Yes. No, I love that answer. Um, it really boils back down to what we were talking earlier about indifferences, right? Um, where... You know, and things like Body Keeps the Score and Waking the Tiger and like the leading somatic therapy, which is pretty forefront in psychology right now. Um, there is a lot of talk about trauma being held in the body. So we know more than ever from a scientific standpoint that it is highly likely that not expressing our emotions is actually self-harm on ourselves and probably others as well. But that being said, if we can train our rational mind to also view things as, well, what am I really reacting to? 
you know, like what's actually happening right now? Am I actually upset about what I think I'm upset about? You know, and once I decide that I am upset about what I think I'm upset about, does that actually imply what I'm assuming it implies? And being able to break down, like you said, you know, I broke the video game controller. What am I actually upset about? Is it finances or is it just that I'm inconvenienced, you know, uh, and being able to source out the answer of that can actually alleviate the distress. And that is actually why you said, well, we wouldn't even really experience anger at that point because we've broken everything down. And even if, you know, you're in conflict with another person and you can say like, oh, this person is just reacting from what they think is the truth and what they think is good for them, even if I don't agree. And that helps you, you know, rationalize not viewing them as an enemy or as a bad person. Um, and I do think that those are amazing skills in life. Yeah, I, I agree. And Marcus talks a lot about, there's a bunch of different instances where he speaks to, you know, what other people do doesn't matter. You can't control that. And that's the other big thing about stoicism. It's everything that's within your control. That's what this philosophy really, really cares about. It, I can't change the color of the sky. I can't change if it's going to rain. So why am I going to be upset about that? Why am I going to waste my precious energy, which I have very little of, by <laughs> the way, because remember, we're always thinking about our, our mortality and how we are going to die. So why am I going to waste it? on that one of uh, one of marcus's uh, entries that i really uh, think of while i'm talking about this is one where he's talking about like you know like in the morning when you have to get out of bed you know you don't want to leave the comfort the coziness but like is that what you were born to do to be comfortable to be like a little nugget in your bed and never leave is that what you were really born to do or were you born to get up and face the day and make strides that's yep. that's kind of the difference in i guess stoic thinking and maybe more epicurean thinking where epicureans want the good life and it's all about like easy street with stoics the whole obstacle is the way kind of deal oh i love that the obstacle is the way the merit in the mud that's another <laughs> one. yeah Ooh, i'm gonna write that one down <laughs> Well, okay, so we've spent a good while talking about stoicism, and I, I'm i not sure if maybe some of my listeners might be saying to themselves, I thought that this podcast was about a cult. Um, but there's actually a, a really strong tie-in between stoicism and the practice of astrology. And... Well, I, I do want to ask you to explain that. It, I'd also just am interested. It, it sounded like you were a Stoic before a, an astrologer. Yeah, 100%. Did you find out about, did you get interested in astrology because of your interest in Stoicism? I won't say consciously <laughs> that I did, but it seems as if it's almost a natural progression because if I believe in fate and destiny, well, what is astrology but fate and destiny? Sure, yeah, I love that. So how does Stoicism fit into astrology? Maybe we should explain that. Yeah, so uh, Stoicism, I guess we should say that it's a very deterministic um, philosophical yeah, that's a huge view. Key. Yeah, so when I say when I believe in fate and destiny, it's hard determinism. Like, this is life. Your life has been pre-mapped out, essentially. And people don't like that because they like to think, like, I have choice. I can do whatever I want. <laughs> and it's like, you can. And that's fine. So let's, yeah, let's suss this out a little bit. I can see why people would think that stoicism wouldn't have any place in astrology just because I think how modern astrologists practice. But many of the stoics were into astrology in some form or fashion. So let's say that we all agree and uh, we say that divination, which astrology is a form of divination, like let's let's be clear on that, it is. 
and we say that divination works. So the Stoics believed that divination was a way to communicate directly with the gods or logos, as they would put it. And there were various Stoics that believed divination was important and it could be really useful if done by skilled. And skilled is like the underlined word here, skilled diviners. And that signs in the world were meant to be found and interpreted. So basically, the universe, or Logos, put the signs in the world from the very beginning. The signs have always been there, so to speak. The entire system is set up for divination to work, and so that it will work. If you believe in fate and determinism, then you believe in signs, because the Logos put them there from the start. It doesn't mean you're going to find them. If you, You're not always going to find the signs. It doesn't mean that you're going to just, you know... They're going to pop out in front of you, but they are there if you go looking for them. And if you do find them, it doesn't mean that that sign is going to create the event that it point towards. This is very important. And I think a part that people overlook when talking about divination and especially determinism and divination. So the analogy that I have heard and that I like to continue to use is you see a sign on the highway. That indicates there's like a gas station. Well, that sign doesn't create the gas station, but it points towards it. So these signs, uh, they're just like winks from the universe or they're coincidences. They don't cause the event itself, but they do point towards the event. So uh, does that make sense so far? Yes, I've, I've always thought of it as like heralding. Right, right. So uh, basically to wrap that up, I guess this would matter more when you're talking about electional astrology, I would say, because like determinism and electional astrology, things like that possibly. But all astrology together, say you have a chart where Mars or even right now you're looking at your chart and Mars is going to transit a certain house. Say it's going to transit like your first house or your sixth house. That doesn't mean that it's going to... uh, that you're going to fall and trip on a knife or you're going to cut yourself. It doesn't mean that Mars doesn't cause it, but it does point towards it. It's a sign like Mars transiting a specific house or making a specific aspect is a sign pointing towards something, but Mars didn't cause that to happen to you. It's information, not causation. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's how I like to think of it. And a quote from uh, um, Marcus is actually the foolishness of people who are surprised by anything that happens, like travelers amazed at foreign customs. So don't be surprised because the signs have always been there. It's just you may have never looked or saw them. So sure, yeah. So what I am hearing from you is is that stoicism can be applicable to astrology. Because to believe in the divinatory efficacy of a natal chart would be to say you are a determinist of some kind. And, um, you know, Chris Brennan has done a lot of research on this sort of thing that basically Hellenistic astrologers would fit into two camps. But it was only between complete determinism or partial determinism. So either way, this cornerstone history of astrology implied determinism, which was bolstered by a Stoic worldview that pretty much all of the Hellenistic world either accepted or knew someone who accepted. It was they either knew people who believed it or they themselves believed it because it was very widespread. Um, I know that stoicism is generally explicitly completely deterministic. It's not really a system that implies any room for even if you miss the sign, for you to not be 
come into come go down the road you know you may not see that the gas station is coming you didn't see the sign but you are going to drive past it um so there is that there's no room for electional astrology in a worldview that is completely deterministic um do you agree with that so I actually don't practice electional astrology. It's not my thing and maybe I've I've never been drawn to it because of my, you know, innate beliefs. Um and I don't ever really think like oh the world's like I'm yeah, I guess I'm a determinist, but like I don't ever sit around thinking like fate. Everything's fate. I just live my life because I know it's going to happen regardless. It's coming. Like you said, the gas station's going to come whether I saw the sign or not. Mm-hmm. So for me, I don't get hung up on looking at every single little sign or detail. I don't get hung up on that because it's coming and I, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm good and I'll be ready for it because I've trained in this stoic philosophy where anything that comes my way is meant for me and I'm ready to handle it. So I, I don't, I don't think electional astrology is bad. I think it's good to, uh, look at the auspicious times and to see like, oh, this could be something that, you know, happens for me, to me, to someone I love. But again, it's coming anyway. And I think looking at electional astrology only gives you anxiety because you're not living here. You're not focused on now. As you know, with Buddhism, like it's it's right now that matters. It's the action I do today that matters because I might not even be here tomorrow. So why am I going to throw an election for something two months from now when I could be putting that energy into something today? Sure, sure. Um, I would love to share, you know, my answer to that question. But first, I really have to ask you, what is astrology to you then if you're not using it divinationally? Okay. So I don't read charts in like a doom and gloom way, obviously. It's not, you know, this is your fate and you must accept it. It's not It's not like that. Just because we're looking at fate and destiny doesn't mean it's ominous or scary. And although it's not all roses, you know, bad things happen or ba- perceived bad things happen because that's life. So when I'm looking at charts, I'm really looking at, I look for strengths, I look for weaknesses, I look at heavily repeating patterns, the road signs in that chart. That's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for themes. And I think most astrologers do that. So it's not like I'm, you know, different or special in any way, but I'm looking at them so we can tackle them, not sidestep them or avoid them. Because stoicism, again, is all about obstacle being the way the mirror in the mud or finding your gold in, you know, among the coal. And I actually had this like really wild, I don't want to call it a vision, but it was like in that limbo state, that hypnagogic state, you know, right when you're waking up in the morning, as I was thinking about our podcast that we were going to do, I had this kind of like thing that I pictured on this exact topic. So I pictured this like geode this giant geode and it was huge and it was catastrophic and it was life altering and it was blocking the road in front of someone and they see that there's like this tiny little path off to the side that they could take to like sidestep the geode and kind of like shimmy around it but what that person didn't know was that if they went through the geode like the logos had intended then they were going to be met with this like beautiful crystal cavern of just like wonder and amazement and it's often through the hardships that we experience so much beauty and depth in life that we would never find otherwise because we know yes happiness is great and it's a wonderful altered state but there's something to be said about the other side of that that you just can't reach the depths you know there's something about the other side of that coin Scorpios will know. They'll get it. (laughs) Um, So we shouldn't try to sidestep our fate because it's a colossal waste of time for one. And two, it's what the Logos had intended for us to experience. So we could further move towards 
our destiny, our calling, and our fate all together. You know, we should work with the celestial blueprint that was given to us instead of fight against it. So I think that's kind of the long-winded answer of me getting to that was we should work with our blueprint that we are given. And I try to help people do that. I try to help people understand what their birth chart means and how they can use it to really enhance their lives and to really deal with those hard topics that they don't want to deal with, maybe. Yeah, I love that. The first thing that came to mind was uh, one of the passages and meditations, that's actually maybe multiple passages, where Marcus is constantly kind of just saying the correct emotional response to fate of any kind is awe. And I just feel like that that sticks with me. I actually think about that a lot. He's basically like saying, look at the entire tapestry and marvel at how in your tiny human brain, you couldn't even fathom how beautiful this was going to be and just be somehow be able to, even in your moments of darkness, be in awe that the universe could even produce such a hue of color. Um, I love that mentality. My second thought was, and again, I don't remember the exact quote, but this one's actually by Vettius Valens, uh, the Hellenistic astrologer, who basically was saying that to him, the entire purpose of astrology is just to prepare so that you can emotionally prepare for what's coming. So if you know you're going to get married you don't feel like blindsided by this good luck, which would send you into elation. If you know that the divorce is going to happen 15 years later, you don't get depressed about that because you just know that that was the time that you and that person were allotted together. And it, it basically is a, a device to help you cope, mm -hmm. not to help you change. So. It sounds like that's a lot of what you do as well. Yeah, it definitely is. And I think another thing that I should remind people of with like the free will, the Stoics did believe the only part that wasn't fully determined or that wasn't touched by determinism was the soul. The soul has a, a form of free will where it can act because I can choose. I do get to choose. I get to choose. Am I going to blow up today or am I going to mm -hmm. practice my virtues? Am I going to be a virtuous person? So the soul kind of has this tiny little wiggle room where it's like it can't force, you know, the fate. Those things are going to happen to you. And the more you accept it, the smoother it will go kind of deal. So you, yeah, you do have choice in that aspect to choose if you're going to, you know, be one way or the other how you respond. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought it back to where we may or may not have wiggle room because now I can answer uh, where I kind of view this electional question um, and definitely critique my theory if you, <laughs> you know, don't vibe with it. I just can't stop thinking about this because I am a complete determinist. I, I actually was a complete determinist before I even started, like, really studying occult, um, or Buddhism for that matter. And I do electionals. I do. Uh, I care about them as much as I can. As the, I'm not, I'm still a student of astrology, so I'm not you know, as good as them as people who've been casting electionals for 15 years, but uh, I believe in the power of them. And so I was kind of taken aback when it was first presented to me that that might be incompatible with um, complete determinism, because to me, that actually isn't true. In my mind, when my lot was cast at the beginning, there may be something in my chart that implies, well, this person's going to study a cult. 
this person's going to study divination. This person's going to learn astrology. I guess my question becomes, why would it not be a part of my determined fate for me to learn how to cast electionals and use that to decide, you know, this is the day I'm going to air my podcast or, uh, and then Chris Brennan and Justin Sledge were talking on the astrology podcast recently about talismans just kind of being like, I've captured the energy of the planets at that time into the talisman. And I also, you know, that is done exclusively through electional astrology. And I also just don't see how that's incompatible to complete determinism because, again, it's like if if my chart was cast to say that I was destined to make this talisman, why would me, me making this talisman and harnessing the star's you know, Regulus from that day to give me a little bit of Regulus boost in my life. Why would that not be a part of my fate to to be a magician and to manipulate, you know, reality in this way? If I accept that magic is possible to be done, why could it not be predetermined that I was going to do magic in the first place? Well, it is. So you're you're right. It is, and. Uh... Remember when I said the Stoics believed these things needed to be done by skilled diviners? When they were looking at, I don't know what, I wish I knew what the mancy was called when you look at entrails, um, but that was one they did a lot. <laughs> they really, they looked at entrails a lot of like slaughtered animals. And uh, that was a huge, huge divination. And that was perfectly fine because again, the logos has put the clues has put the signs there and you're just interpreting them again don't be so uh, i don't want to say pompous but pompous to believe that it's going to point you straight towards it because again the road sign doesn't create the gas station but believe when you see it if you are a skilled diviner and you are seeing the signs and you are good at it then yes it it does work. It is a thing. I mean, I I work out by the planetary days. That's something that I do. You know, it's it's capturing like I know today is a, you know, Mars day. So I'm going to do certain things on Mars day because I know that energy is around and looming. It just is. Well, okay, so this this goes to a, a really similar question. Do you believe in remediation? Can you remediate a chart? So it depends on what you mean by remediation, because I've heard people say it as uh, like appeasing a god, and I've heard it as uh, soothing, and I've heard it as like trying to fix something in your chart, which that's <laughs> kind of where I draw the line, trying to fix sure. something in your chart, because then you're not accepting what the Logos has given you. So that's where I would say I fall off. For me, remediation is working with that energy in order to understand it better and its role in your fate better. <laughs> yeah, as a person who's constantly being told to remediate my Saturn, which is a pretty impossible task, I vibe with what you just said. Yes, it's not so much like, oh, if I do this for Saturn, they'll be nice to me now. No. Like, no, no, no. <laughs> it's about learning, like, okay, this is this is my Saturn. And this is what Saturn is. If I can somehow imbue myself with Saturnian energy, if I can somehow learn to work with it and figure out what my fate, my destiny, my path wants from me is where it's trying to point me, that's remediation in my opinion. I get a lot of uh, students who have like, they want like Venus remediation, things like that. And uh, that's one where I'm like, okay, I'm not going to find you a partner we're going to work on what does Venus mean to you? What is it about you that you're blocking or not receiving this energy that Venus is trying to, you know, give? What do you need to learn in order to remediate that placement? Yeah, I love this. Um, I wasn't sure if I was going to have a chance to bring this up in the conversation, but it's something I've been thinking about just knowing that we were going to talk about this today. and. So I did 
try to do a Saturn remediation right before my Saturn return. Uh, and when I say people told me to Saturn remediate, I I really mean I told myself to Saturn remediate because I'm a largely Saturn dominant person. And so I was very anxious, another Saturn trait about my return. And so to make a long story short, if you do Saturn remediation, um, all that it's really going to end up doing is turning you into a stoic, <laughs> influencing you to uh, just be more at peace with the lessons that Saturn gives you. There is no such thing as causing Saturn to not do his thing. And actually, the way that I learned that was not through Stoic philosophy. It was through a book called The Greatness of Saturn. And it actually is a remediation. It's a ancient Jyotish remediation. There's a, a history in Jyotish astrology where just hearing a story, hearing the vibrations of a story, will remediate the planet. And the story of Saturn was just this guy continuously just living his Saturn return. It was basically just him living through it. And the most interesting part, the part that I never forget when I got frustrated when Saturn started, you know, whooping my butt. And I was like, I did all that remediation. And I remembered from the greatness of Saturn, the book that I had been reading, where these astrologers and these soothsayers and these magicians had all come to the king who the story was about, the guy who went through. It was really a sati-sati, but I'm not going to get into that. But they all were like, let us remediate. We'll do this. We'll do that. We'll do all these things. Give all this charity to Saturn, planetary charity. Do feed the poor. Do this, do that, and it'll save you from your fate. And the king said, no. The king said, I have to face what it was allotted me. And I'm not going to try to grasp at the idea that I could possibly change this. I'm just going to accept it. And over time, I realized that was the point of the entire story was just, yes, this is a Saturn remediation. But the remediation is to get you to understand that you just have to accept it. Um, so it's interesting that that concept is in geotish astrology as well it's just a very saturnal it's tied to saturn which i actually wanted to ask you um you once told me stoicism is a kind of martial philosophy and i do see that i did not put this on your interview questions so if you feel on the spot but it, can you explain what you mean by that yeah I can, so for me, being a very Martian person, I guess your listeners don't know this, but I am ruled by Mars. I have an Aries moon. It is the forefront of my entire chart. It's the master of the nativity. It guides everything I do. So I do a lot of Mars remediation. And when I say Mars remediation, I'm not trying to sidestep anything. I'm actively calling in Mars and saying, all right, let's do it today. Like, let's let's move forward today. Let's go through the geode today. You know, let's let's go right through it. So when I say it's a Martian, I say that because for a couple of reasons. The first is one of the, the stoic virtues is courage. So we have courage there. You you obviously that seems to me be a very Martian trait, but also temperance. So in martial arts, think of how much control and restraint they have to have. That is something, martial arts isn't just like, you know, whooping people all the time. It's, it's a very controlled, and I think Austin Kopic talks a lot about, you know, martial arts and uh, martial things. So stoicism, it's control. It's not so much physical, but it is mental. It's a very mental control and not in the way that I feel like Saturn is, where it's like boundaries and things, because I'm free. I'm free to move. I'm free to do. No one else is telling me or imposing boundaries upon me except myself. So it's a very self-regulating philosophy in where, again, 
the days when you don't feel like doing it are the days you should do it. I love that. This idea of self-liberation, but controlled passion. Self-liberation through controlled passion. Directing the will explicitly towards exaltation of the self, both individually and as a member of the community. And therefore, honoring right desire, which is the four virtues, and not giving in so much to maybe the empty, hollowed aspects of the martial, which is the other side of desire. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Marcus at one point says something along the lines of, I might get this wrong, but you know, what's good for the bee is good for the hive. Sure. And that's something about what's good for me, me working on myself, because all I can control is me, is going to be good for you. It's going to be good for my neighbors. If I'm a better person, if I'm a more controlled, tempered, wise, courageous person, that's going to be better for everyone in the long run. Yeah, that's and it goes back into that interwoven tapestry that we're just all interconnected and in ineffable ways that we don't understand it. It's all, everything that happens is a necessity in order for the all being or logos or in nature to express itself. Um, So we've actually gone through just naturally a lot of these questions. So I'll just skip to one of these last ones, which is, oh, well, we've talked a lot about Marcus Aurelius and the meditations. So Do you have a favorite passage that you would like to share with us? I have a lot of them. So when you asked me to look up like a favorite one, that was very hard. Just because I carry this around, it's pretty much my Bible. Like it's in my purse at all times. So I did pick one. I will say that the the whole thing, it's so funny because uh, Stoicism is about, you know, controlling emotion and, you know, being even keeled, but still feeling. And I'm a very even person for the most part. But when I read Stoic philosophy, like it just stirs something in me. Like I will cry reading this. It's very weird. Um, But even when you were just talking about like people accepting their fate, I was like, what a beautiful, what a beautiful thing to do. Like, ah, so much power in accepting that. So I did pick one that I have here that I'm going to read. It's a little bit, it's not long. That's okay. But um, So I also want to say that, so if anyone does decide like, hey, Marcus sounds like a super cool dude, like I want to read up on him. My favorite thing about meditations is that he never wrote this to be consumed by like the masses. This was like pretty much his diary. In a sense, it was just him being like, hey, these are my reflections for the day. That's what meditations means, just reflections. So some passages in here are very funny. Oh, yeah, they can be really hilarious. <laughs> oh, the one where he talks about the man whose like mouth stinks and his armpits stink. And he's like, and why wouldn't they when he looks like that? <laughs> and so clearly these weren't made for mass consumption in the way that he thought it was going to be and he wasn't even a true philosopher he was but he was a roman emperor you know he's always lamenting about his lot of being an emperor when he would rather be a philosopher (laughs) yeah and but he accepted it and he still found a way to use stoicism because he loved it so much so i'm going to read the one that I have picked out for. Again, this is my favorite. I want to make that clear because I don't know what my favorite is yet, but it's um, it's one of them. One of them. I respect this. It's unfortunate that this has happened. No, it's fortunate that this has happened and I've remained unharmed by it, not shattered by the present or frightened of the future. It could have happened to anyone, but not anyone could have remained unharmed by it. Why treat this as one misfortune rather than the other as fortune? Can you really call something a misfortune that doesn't violate human nature? Or do you think something that's not against nature's will can violate it? But you know what its will is. 
Does what's happened keep you from acting with justice, generosity, self-control, sanity, prudence, honesty, humility, straightforwardness, and all other qualities that allow a person's nature to fulfill itself? So remember this principle when something threatens to cause you pain. The thing itself was no misfortune at all. To endure it and prevail is great good fortune. And that is also why I say it's a very Martian, a martial philosophy to prevail, to overcome, to champion, to rise above is all very Mars, in my opinion. I also love that there's this, it is very much centered around self. And I I have a very hard time thinking about Mars without thinking about Aries and the emperor and this concept of, you know, individuality, but knowing that you're an individual within the whole and how that's meant to work. And this idea that Marcus presented in the passage you just read is basically, you know, the universe only gives you what you can handle. And if it's happening to you, that means that it's yours. And it's up to you to, like you said, rise above it or to shrink from it. But either way, like, it is explicitly about how you yourself choose to handle things, not the world around you. So I love, even though you're meant to participate in the world around you. So I love that. Yeah. And to participate in the world around you, you would want to be the most just, honest, you know, pious person you could possibly be in order to contribute something worthwhile. Yeah, and it's it's funny because, again, like I'm thinking about the Emperor Tarot card and I'm thinking about Marcus Aurelius as an emperor. And it is just, you know, how do we, we all live in our own personal kingdoms in which we are the ruler of that kingdom. So then the question that we all have to ask ourselves are the really the same questions that Marcus asks himself every day. What kind of ruler do I want to be? Do I want to, you know, rule by fear? Do I want to rule by love? Do I want to have temperance and maybe be perceived as a philosopher king? But I think it's important for everyone listening to this to remember that we all are kings of our own kingdom and that these lessons really do work on a metaphorical level for each of us and how each of us guides and navigates, you know, I always am thinking about Kabbalah, so Malkuth, the kingdom. (laughs) All right, so I don't have a favorite passage either, like, I'm going to be honest, Um, but I will read a short bit of one as well. Um, This one is from Notebook 3, Passage 2. One should also take careful note of things such as the fact that even the byproducts of natural phenomena have a certain charm and attractiveness. For example, in the process of baking bread, the loaf breaks open in some places. And although these cracks, in a sense, represent a failure of the baker's art, they do somehow catch the eye and in their own way, stimulate the desire to eat the bread. So that's not the whole passage, but I love it. Well, A, because I just love to bake bread. So it's a metaphor that's very close to my heart. But it also is just because there is so much that we see in the meditations of Marcus kind of being like, I could have handled that better. I I wish I had done better. So So then on the opposite side, we also see him continuously remind himself it's okay to make mistakes, these flaws and these ways that I feel, you know, like maybe I've let myself down, I've let others down. It's not me being broken. It's me being a complex human being, just like this nutritious and wonderfully communal act of bread baking and bread sharing breaking bread with family. I mean, if you have ever seen a fresh 
baked bread come out of the oven and you intentionally crackle it in order to know how good it's going to be. You know, so it is true that those imperfections on the loaf indicate just how yummy the bread is going to be. So I just love that metaphor. I thought it, it was so beautiful. So, And even that example is very Martian to me because he's talking about splits, divides, and that's what Mars does. And he goes on in that passage, I believe, to talk about like a fig that's been ripened and like kind of like falls and breaks and like leaves from trees falling. So all of that is very Martian to me. So yes, it encompasses both sides of Mars where we make mistakes, we're brash, we sometimes cut ties and we do things we shouldn't. But those are all part of us learning and growing towards the virtues and you can get it right next time. Yes. And that's the best part about change really in my mind. I mean, so as a person who has considered myself a complete determinist for a long time, I have obviously had people be like, that makes me uncomfortable for over a decade now. (laughs) But to me, it's actually the most comforting thing in the whole world because it means I don't have to hold on. It means that I don't have to fight for things that are outside of my control. I don't have to bear, I mean, maybe this is kind of petty, but I don't have to bear all of the responsibility for every single one of my choices as if it's this big, huge deal that was wholly my responsibility to make the right choice the first time round. It's kind of like, well, A, I meant to make mistakes sometimes, actually. That is perfection, is to make a mistake sometimes. And then B, you know, all of this is actually just me playing out the role and the life that was assigned to me, which means that even the moments of what I perceive to be my biggest failures the universe is celebrating its success. And to me, there's just something so comforting about that. So I know that it can be really scary for some people to feel like their agency is completely removed. So much so that there have been scholars who have suggested that Stoicism's such harsh, harsh determinism is what really you know, paved the way and laid fertilizer for the rise of Christianity and Gnosticism and Hermeticism, which were the next series of major philosophies, and they all really emphasized one's ability to escape fate. Um, But I don't know. I don't want to escape my fate. I, I enjoy the peace of mind that I get knowing that it's not really... I don't even really know what's right for me. So what's worth getting upset about? I would ask the people that like need free will to be part of their, I guess, worldview. Like, what do you, what is it you're holding on to? What is it? What is it exactly about determinism that it doesn't sit right? Because all your, again, all your actions are your own. It's not like they like you're programmed, you're not a robot, you're choosing. You could have made a mistake or you could have not made a mistake. Again, you could have blew up at your neighbor or you could have not blown up at your neighbor. That was your choice. But there's just so much that I think it is very beautiful when you can let go and just allow yourself to live. You're not like you said you're not constantly thinking like should I do this? Should I do that? It's like, no. I'm just going to do it. And you'll feel once you once you accept fate and destiny, you you get to feel like "Mm, I'm veering off the path. Like you you start to get (laughs) that sense of what is for you and it becomes stronger and stronger. The more you work with your fate, the more you work with astrology, it becomes stronger and the voice gets louder and you know where you're supposed to be headed, which is I think is a very beautiful, beautiful thing. Me too. Well, this has been just such a delightful conversation, Delena. I appreciate you being here with me so much. Yeah, it's been wonderful. I really enjoyed it. And I hope that, if nothing else, that people take away that Stoicism is not a uh, zero emotion philosophy. It's a beautiful way to take control of your life and just to be really cool.
So Yeah. Oh, and before we leave, I mean, obviously we've been talking about Marcus Aurelius's meditations, but do you have any other resource suggestions for people who want to learn more about what we've been talking about? Yeah, so we can, uh, I'll mention, you know, there's kind of like a big three you have in astrology. There's a big three of Stoicism. So you have Epictetus, you have Seneca, and you have Marcus Aurelius. Those are the three hot button names. There's also Zeno, there's Chrysippus, uh, Cicero. But the first three that I named are the big ones. And I think they're so great because one was a Roman emperor, one was actually a slave, and then the other was an advisor to, you know, an, an emperor. So it's not just if you're in a high status position that this philosophy can work. It's really any, any position in life, whether you're at the top, whether you're at the bottom, it can work for you and it can really help you shape your worldview and accept life and ultimately just I feel like it makes you happier, truly. Yay. I agree. I'm going to add some link descriptions to some of those in the um, episode description. And I'm also going to include all of Delena's links. So you guys can check all of that out. And uh, with that, I, I think we're going to sign off. Do you have any final words, Delena? No. No, I don't. I think I said temperance. I said all I needed to say. That's another stoic uh, sentiment. Speak less, listen more. Yep. Well, all right. As always, I love all my listeners. And until we meet again.